Thanks be to God for the reading of God's word. Thank you, Rachel, for reading it for us this morning. Welcome, Shelton, to our Sunday morning worship gathering on this gloomy, beautiful Sunday. <laughs> Even though weather may be dark, we are so thankful that we get to gather in the name of the Lord this morning. Let me just catch you up where we have been this fall, thus far. Uh, we have been studying the book of Ephesians in the fall, and we have been reminded we have walked through first two chapters thus far. We have been reminded of who we are in Christ. Christ has redeemed us by the blood of himself because of his substitutionary sacrifice on the Christ we have been reconciled. We have been united with him. And as you heard last week, now we are united, reconciled with one another. There's no more barriers between Jews and Gentiles. We are one church in Christ Jesus. That's where we have been thus far. And today we are about to dive in, as Rachel read it for us, we are about to dive into chapter 3, and the first half of chapter 3, which we will cover today, will ask this question. What does the church mean to you? Think about it. What does the church mean to you? Because Paul is about to harp, about to really elaborate on the centrality of the church in the Christian life. Might as well, I'll just read the central verse in this text, verse 10. His intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known. Through the church, through us, through the bride of Christ, the wisdom of God shall be known. That's a lofty calling to all of us. So the question is, what does the church mean to you, Chelton? Does the church mean Sunday morning to you, perhaps? You show up, there was a saying that people used to give three days a week to church. Now people give three hours per month. People used to go to church three days a week, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Nowadays, we show up once a month on Sunday morning. Is that what church means to you? Or perhaps you have grown up in a church so much that it kind of became life routine for you. Church means Sunday, you go to church. That's your life cycle. That's who you are. That's what you do. But at the same time, deep down in your longing for some of you, you desire to be really known for who you are and be cared for who you are, and you want that from church. You treasure church. You love church. You want church to be the central part of who you are. If you are there, Paul is right there with you. You will see that just in a moment. For Paul, church is the very agent through which God reveals the riches of Christ and the wisdom of God. In Paul's mind, church really is the very agent through which God reveals the riches of Christ and the wisdom of God, even if it takes suffering and everything. So what does that mean for the churches to reveal the wisdom of God and the riches of Christ? We will get there just in a moment. But today, rather than me giving introduction about the sermon, I'll have somebody else give introduction. 
And his name is Apostle Paul. I'll have him give introduction to this sermon himself. So it will be a little bit lengthy intro because Paul kind of does that. See how Paul begins in this section, verse 1. What does he begin? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And after he says that, do you see the long dash there? A lot of Bible scholars don't know quite what to do with this section. Oftentimes, when I prepare a sermon, I read books, many books, and listen to some other preachers. I realize that this text is not the most popular text. A lot of preachers tend to skip it unless they are like us, walking through the entire counsel of God. There's benefit of that because we get to deal with, wrestle with every single text revealed in this book. The reason why I realize that a lot of preachers tend to skip this verse is that Paul here, after he says this reason, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of your Gentile, that long dash does not end until the end of 14. So Paul here begins prayer in verse 1, and then he gets, oh, by the way, before I continue in my prayer, let me tell you a little bit about who I am and what I do, what I believe. This is a little excursus, a little appendix, a little footnote in a sense. Verse 2 through 13 is one sentence in Greek. In verse 14 there, Paul finally picks back up his rationale, his thought. So as if Paul is writing, oh, by the way, I have something to tell you. Let me tell you about my passion. Let me tell you about what I care about, my calling, what I care about the church. So there are many random thoughts in one sense. It's not necessarily the most cohesive as this is the Paul's autobiography, his passion, his calling. But the centrality of the church, how much he loved church, is bleeding all over that. Do you see how Paul begins? I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ in verse 1. Why does he say that? He's, he's not a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's a prisoner of Rome at that time. When he wrote Ephesians, he was approximately imprisoned for about four years. But Paul does not even bound himself by external circumstance. Yes, I may be a prisoner of Rome, but even I am more than that. I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He is sovereign in my suffering. He's sovereign over my trials. He's sovereign over my joys and trial. More than me being bound by the circumstance, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And Paul's primary focus in his suffering, in his imprisonment, isn't about himself. What's Paul's primary concern? Look verse 13. I ask you, therefore, for all the reasons I mentioned of 2 through 12, therefore, don't be discouraged not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Children, what happens when you suffer? When you go through long, such a painful heartbreak, oftentimes it has a very inward curve. In carvatus, in say, that we are deeply inwardly curved, the suffering tends to absorb ourselves. But even in his suffering, Paul's mind, my primary concern is for you. Do not lose heart in my suffering because I am suffering for you, church, and it is for your glory. What an incredible suffering that Paul is dealing with. Have you been through this kind of suffering? You are, there's peculiar type of suffering. When someone you love is suffering, you suffer because you love them so much. You wish you are suffering on their behalf. So even Paul is suffering, imprisoned in Rome. He's saying, don't worry about me. 
Don't be discouraged, church. I love you, and do not lose your heart in your well-doing. I am suffering for you. My heart is bleeding for you, church. And take heart no matter what you are going through. Um, if you're a parent, you know what I'm about to say. Sometimes you love your children so much that your heart bleeds for them. I once heard a saying that parents are only as happy as their, as their most miserable child. <laughs> you know what I mean by that? You love your children so much that when they suffer, oh man, I wish I suffered for you. Don't lose heart. You can do this because your heart bleeds for your children. In a sense, Paul is here doing exactly the same thing. I love you so much, church, so even I am suffering. Don't worry about it. Don't be discouraged in my suffering. It's for your glory. It's also part of God's plan in my life for all the reasons that I mentioned above. Because he begins by 13 say, I ask you, therefore. So what are the things that Paul mentioned before? That Paul said, don't worry about me. I'm okay. I'm suffering for you. Shelton, the question we want to ask today, as messed up as we are, Church of Christ is not the most pretty being. We are a sinful being. As messed up as we are, Paul suffers for his church. I am suffering for you. And Jesus suffered for his church. Jesus, in fact, died for his church. So do you really believe that the church is worthy of Paul's suffering? Do you really believe that church is worthy of Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death? Jesus' resounding answer is, yes, I died for you, my bride. So as we are about to dive in this Paul's autobiography of his passion for local church, I hope and pray that we take a bit seriously about the meaning of church, what church is all about. Is this simply that what you come to entertain yourself once a month? Is this gathering just become lifestyle? Or is this truly community that you are known, you are loved, that you live worthy of Christ laying down his life for his church? I pray that the gravity of the church that God has called us to be will capture our hearts and imagination as we dive in today. So today, Paul will lay out two things in this text. Two things that Paul lay out is first, the characteristics of church and second, the purpose of church. So characteristics and the purpose of church. Let's go one by one. So first, there are two characteristics of church that Paul lays out. First, it embodies, the church embodies the characteristics of church. It embodies the mystery of grace. First, it's mystery of grace. The church embodies the mystery of grace. Now, read verse 23, how Paul goes about it. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. When you read this first half sections of Ephesians, one of the most repeated words in this section is the word mystery. Now, perhaps we have some mystery novel fans out here. Perhaps you love reading mystery novels, Sherlock Holmes or what? Or perhaps you love mystery movies, recently Knives Out, or anything like that. When you hear the word mystery, what do you think? You think it's something hidden that you, it's your job to discover. 
And once you see it, you cannot unsee it. So you don't know how the things will end, but there's great reversal of the plot, and you're like, whoa, I didn't see that. And you cannot unsee it, right? Bruce Willis is a ghost. In case you don't get this joke, I actually haven't watched The Sixth Sense myself either, but somebody told me that, so I couldn't really watch the movie. That was the whole reversal of the plot in the end. If you watched it, I guess you know what I mean. If you're upset that I just spoiled you, it's been 20, 30 years. You're not going to watch it. <laughs> but when we hear the word mystery, what do we think? We say something so hidden that it's our job to discover the hidden truth. That's the English word usage of the word mystery. But actually what Paul means by the here is actually exactly opposite. Now, we think the mystery is something hidden that it is our job to discover. Paul's usage of the Greek word mysterion is this, that it's something that we would never discover on our own. So God chose to disclose himself. That's how Paul used that. We think word mystery is something that we must figure out, something hidden truth that God closes, so it's our job to discover Paul's usage of the word mystery, that actually we would never discover it on our own. So God chose to reveal it to himself. And what does Paul call this mystery? The grace of God. He used the word grace three times in verse 2. A verse all over the places. The word mystery was used in 3, 4, 6, 9. And the word grace is used in verse 2, 7, and 8. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. So now as Paul sees it, as the, he used the word mystery, that it's so counterintuitive that we would never discover it on our own. So God chose to reveal it himself. So grace does not make sense by reasoning, doesn't it? Well, you've done bad deeds. The law makes sense. Law is very good for logic and reasoning. Have you done bad deeds, church? Well, you will be punished. Have you done good deeds? You will be rewarded. It makes sense to me. You hate me? Oh, I hate you more. You're welcome. That's the law, often like teeth for teeth, eye for eye. You get what you get. It makes sense. There's no mysterious aspect of that. But grace is so mysterious. Last shall be first. What? God will use foolish things to shame the strong? Wise? What? You redeem the world not through strength but through weakness? It does not make sense. What? God does not die for the lovely, but God dies himself to make us, the enemies, lovely in his sight? Whoa, that's mystery to me. What makes sense to me is if you do good to me, I'll do good to you. If you hate me, oh, I don't like you either. You love me, oh, I love you too. But Jesus came to love those who would reject him. That's called grace, and it's mysterious. It does not make sense to me. If you look at any other world mysticism, religions, northern European tales, Oftentimes, humans die for gods. Humans sacrifice themselves to appease God. That makes sense. But Christianity offers opposite. God himself, the mighty, almighty God, will die himself to redeem humanity, to mankind. That's mysterious to me. It does not make sense. 
And Paul calls this grace of God such a mysterious that we would never discover it on our own. That's why everyone completely missed Jesus Christ when he came. Everyone expected strong, mighty, ruled a victor who would conquer the world. That makes sense to me. But he came as a helpless babe. And he chose to go to the lowest place on earth, the cross, and shed his blood and died for us. We once were enemies of him. What an incredible mystery of grace that Paul is showing in this text. And that's what he says in verse 11. That's all according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are forgiven when we nailed him to the cross. That's called grace. See, Chelton, I don't know about you, but the world rules make sense to me, right? If you go to airplane, what does it say? In case of emergency, put your self-mask first and then help others. That makes sense to me, right? So that we need to save ourselves first so then we can help others. Back in the college, I was a lifeguard trainer. That means I was a lifeguard and I got to train lifeguard to be a lifeguard. And in our manual, one of the things that they teach you, essential things about lifeguard is that when the victim is drowning, you never approach them from front. What happens if you approach the drowning victim from front? They're panicking. They just grab hold of and drowning together. So they say you approach from behind. So that in case they panic, you still be able to rescue them. That makes sense to me. You got to save yourself first in order to help others. That totally makes sense. But is that what Jesus Christ did in a sense? No. He himself went to hell so that we can go to heaven. He descended into hell at the cross of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? It does not. It's so mysterious to me. It's so wondrous to me. And where we get all the greatest information on the world these days? YouTube. I saw this video once. There's a huge flood happening. Under the bridge, there's this cat isolated by himself, does not know what to do. The water's flowing really fast. Cat does not know what to do. So this person, this human, rolls up the pants and he's sleeping, goes up to rescue cat. What does this cat do? He just scratching to like, this person is trying to save cat, but this cat is just scratching. He's taking all the wounds and scars in his arm to rescue cat. That's what exactly Jesus Christ did to us. We killed him, the one who came to save us. We killed him. We nailed him to the cross. But Jesus Christ did not say, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You kill me, why don't you die? No, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The wonder of grace, the mystery. Do you know this mystery of grace? It's scandalous. It does not make sense. And Paul calls, what does it say? God's intent is that through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God shall be known. The very riches of Christ and the wisdom of him shall be known. The very mystery of grace shall be known through us. The Paul is calling his local church to do the same today. What does the church mean to you? Is this gathering that grace is extended to you? Love is truly extended to you? Or is this the gathering that everything makes sense? As long as you benefit me, I am here. As long as you hurt me, I am out. It's all about me. Church just for me. That would make sense in the world, right? 
But no, this is the community where it embodies one of the characteristics of the church is that it embodies the mystery of grace shown at the cross of Jesus Christ. So when we are helpless, when we are hopeless, God loved us unconditionally, and that very wisdom of God, the riches of Christ, shall be known through us. Can we, Chelton, be this kind of community? I pray that we become a type of church that really demonstrates the mystery of grace to all of us who have gathered here, to all people, not just the ones that we like, not just the ones that we share similar political inclinations, not just to the rich ones. Human tended to gravitate toward powerful and influential ones, but not only to those, to all people, not only to educated ones, not only toward the rich ones, but to all people who have taken step in this gathering. May they experience the wonder and the mystery of grace that was shown at the cross in a way that we love one another, in a way that we care for one another, may the wonder, wisdom, and the mystery of grace become evident. And that is so counterintuitive. I think that's what makes grace so beautiful. It's mysterious because we would never discover it on our own. So God chose to reveal it himself through Christ at the cross. The question is, do you love him? Do you know this wonder and the mysterious grace that God chose to reveal it himself? Through his grace, we are redeemed. And as a church, we are called to extend the very same. The riches of Christ and the wisdom of God shall be known in this church that God has brought us as one church. So how does that actually manifest? The second characteristics of the church that actually represent of mystery of grace is that second, there's union with Christ and union with one another. The first characteristics of the church is that there's mystery of grace, and second, there's union with Christ and one another. So now if verse 3 says that the mystery of God has been revealed, then what does that revealed reality really look like? Verse 3, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that how many times the word together, together, together is repeated in verse 6? three times. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said there's important Greek prefix S-Y and English word sun. It has that, that's how it's translated as together. It means have a union with, be together. Like English prefix as S-Y-N in all the words such as synchronize, synonym, synonymous. It has the meaning of likeness, union, similarity. That's what the word together is translated here as well. Mystery of the gospel is that now Gentiles and Jews are together because of what Christ has done. And we are one body. We are neither three bodies nor two bodies, but one body. Even people we like and dislike, we are one body in Christ and we share fellowship with one another. So as John Stott, the Anglican British minister, puts it, to sum up, 
we may say that the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union both with Christ. Because we have been united with God by the blood of Christ, now we are united with one another. So as we talked about last week, Pastor Shep walked us through the second half of Ephesians 2. Now the wall is torn down. There's no longer the veil. Jews and Gentiles are reconciled, and this is a reinforcement of this glorious reality that the wall is torn down. So the question I want to ask to all of you, one church, Chelton, what hinders you to truly become together in one body? Have you been rejecting somebody? You say, oh man, if only that person wasn't here, oh man, Chelton would be so much better. Oh man, he just doesn't know better, does it? She's always gossiping. Ugh. I just can't stand him. What are the things that really hinder you from truly becoming one church? Jesus bled for his church. Last week, we ended our service in repentance. May the repentance lead to forgiveness. May the repentance really lead to be freedom from your bitterness, resentment despising someone because that really becomes hostility jesus tore down the wall we are not three churches in this gathering Shelton is one church jesus died for one church he says we are together of one body shared together in the promise of christ perhaps somebody you despise today is your dear friends could have very well be someone you love so much you have love hate relationship do you know what, what's really hard to forgive somebody? When you think you really know better, it's very hard to forgive somebody. When you have superiority complex, oh, I know better, it's very hard to forgive somebody. It's very hard not to resentful. But here say the Gentiles and heirs are all together with Israel, members together, one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Because we have been united with Christ, now we are united together as one body of christ so here is a little secret for you Chelton. if there's anything that hinders you from truly becoming one body of Chelton, because you've been rejecting somebody you say oh those people oh jen if they just go away everything will be so much better you know what's secret to let that go in church remember Chelton, jesus died for him too Jesus died for her as well. The one you resent, when you resent someone, Jesus died to save. You are mocking the death of Jesus Christ. When you despise someone, Jesus died to save. We nullify everything that Christ has done at the cross. So there is no room for hostility in this gathering, but we are together as one body of Christ. Paul suffers. Hey, I am suffering for your glory. My heart bleeds for local church. May you, church, God's intent is that through the church, the riches of Christ and the wisdom of God may be revealed. May we become a church that's truly characterized by showing this mysterious of grace that Christ shown at the cross. We are united with him. Now we are united with one another. We lay down our differences Unity does not mean uniformity. Despite our differences, despite our different preferences, we become one church because that's what Jesus Christ has done on the cross to accomplish. 
So because we are together on other things, do you see that there is no room for incognito in a church? We are sharers of everything. If you are truly isolated, I pray that you will be known and be cared for who you are. Come on out. Come out of your closet. Be known for who you are. May we demonstrate mystery of grace to you, to one another. Extend love with one another. And I pray that that will mark the Chelton, a church of hope truly. Second things we learn from this text, we talked about the characteristic and the very purpose of church. What is the very purpose of church? Verse 9 and 10, Paul says this, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was hidden, kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, through us, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realm. What does this mean? When it says the rulers and authority in the heavenly realm, it means the demon, evil one, made through in a way that we conduct our lives. May our love, may our grace that was shown to us, the way we extend, may the wisdom of God, grace of God be known to the world who was influenced by the evil ones and all the wickedness. May we be marked by differences that shows not eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but the way we extend grace to one another. The purpose of the church, its intent is to show the riches of Christ and the mystery of grace to the dying world. Everything is falling apart in this world. Yeah, may church be so counterintuitive community that we go out of our ways to love one another and care for one another. So, Shelton, what kind of community are we? I want to ask that question today. Are we truly a counterintuitive community? Or does, when the world looks at us, it shouldn't make sense to them. I was like, wow, it does not make sense to them the way they love one another. He's there, and she's there, she's there, and he's there. How can they be together in one church? They have nothing in common. The mystery of grace is what unites all of us. May we never be a contractual community. We are here as long as it benefits me, and it, as long as it hurts me, I am out. I'm the first one to be out. Kristen Paul, in her masterpiece of work, she's the professor of emeritus in Osbury Seminary, and she wrote this book, Living into Community, and writes very four practical things we can do that marks the gospel of Christ in a local church. And may local church truly be marked by gratitude, promise-making and promise-keeping, truth-telling in love, and hospitality. Is that us? that shows the riches of Christ and manifold of wisdom in a way that we express gratitude to one another. I love you. I care for you. I am thankful for you because I know what Christ has done. I extend the same gratitude to one another. And are we the truly community that make promise and keep the promise to one another? Paul says the promise-making and promise-keeping is uniquely, it's what uniquely differentiates and distinguishes us as we are made in the image of God. Promise is the very internal framework for every relationship and every community is built. They function like a hidden support in the well-built house. May we make promise, hey, I love you and I'm committed for you. I'm willing to lay down my life for your flourishing because we are one church in Christ, and I'll do anything to fulfill my promise to you. 
That's not contractual community. Contractual community says, if you do this, I'm out. And if you say that, goodbye. No, we are committed for the flourishing of well-being. We make promise and follow through. And may we become a true community. The riches of Christ is shown in a way that we share truth and love. Biblical peacemaking really embodies both truth and love. But aren't we often leaning just one way to one another? We often sometimes have just truth without love. That does not result in peacemaking. That results in peace breaking. You tell me all the truth, but you don't even love me? Hey, I'm just being honest with you. That's a poor excuse for being rude. <laughs> On the other side, some of you guys have said, I love you, but you don't even are willing to have uncomfortable conversation. There's love but no truth. Oh, that's not peacemaking. That's peace faking. You're just willing to appease everybody so that you can be known as good man. And may we be truly be the community that shows the hospitality, the wonder of grace, the riches of grace that Christ had shown at the cross so that we can truly be one church. Children, perhaps some of you heard this saying already, illness begins with I, but wellness begins with we. Are we truly a church that is one in Christ Jesus? Or are we just here to my gain? Here, Paul is suffering for his church. And even in his suffering, Paul is like, don't worry about me. Don't be discouraged. I'm okay. My suffering is for you. Paul is laying down his life for the flourishing of the church. And if you just don't know where to begin to embody this mystery of grace today, I pray that you begin at the foot of the cross. The apex of the mystery of grace is really shown by Jesus Christ himself on the cross. When we were enemies of him, he laid down his life to redeem us. And may we become a community, community of believers that embodies this glorious truth. May we be marked by mysterious grace and union with Christ and one another in a way that we show gratitude with one another, in a way that we make promise, in a way that we keep promise, in a way that we tell truth in love, in a way that we show hospitality to one another. So when the world looks at us, there's something mysterious about Chelton. Those people are so different, yet they love one another. May their wonder and the attractiveness and the winsomeness of the gospel be evident. There is something thicker than our physical blood. That is the blood of Jesus Christ that unites all of us. Jesus extended his grace to us. Father, forgive them. May we extend the same grace and love Jesus died to secure. Let's pray together. God, it forced me to examine myself today, O oh Lord. What kind of community are we today? God, is my life truly marked by just what I want? Is my life heart marked by hostility toward one another? Oh God, humble me. Humble each one of us who have gathered here today. God, you have made known the mysterious the mystery of grace to all of us through what you have done at the cross. And sometimes, God, we do not embody that. You call your church to embody this glorious truth, but often we do not, so we repent. May the Chelton, a church of hope, 
be the church that really extends this mysterious grace that is known through Christ Jesus in a way that we love, in a way that we serve, in a way that we commit to one another. So God, today, this morning, we commit ourselves and our church to you. May your mercy and grace be evident in our gathering in a way that we think of one another, in a way that we love one another. Oh God, when we don't know where to begin, I pray that we will just sit at the foot of the cross where your blood was shed for us. May your same love that was extended to us, we will extend the same to one another today and forevermore. In your precious name we pray, amen.